0: Thanks Nate. What a great day of worship it's already been. This is uh, just fantastic to be in the Lord's house today. Thank you children and, and families. I don't, I don't know, Richard and I were up there in the, the, the balcony this morning hearing them rehearse and, and he said, you know, these kids are memorizing scripture. You know, my, my son's going to be able to say, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might because he's hiding it in his heart as he sings it it's such an important thing to have this uh, children's choir. And I don't know if we realized that we have one of the premier children's choir people. And, and we have Lisa Smith, who's incredible. My daughter just loves doing preschool choir with Miss Lisa. And then also Miss Carol, who does this for a living. This is her job. She she works with children's choir all day, every day, or five days a week, which is amazing. So we are so Blessed at Woodmont to have her. what a great resource for our young families like my own I' selfishly am very excited about that so today in our Bible reading plan we finish second Samuel uh, so we're done with first and second Samuel after today but I want to go back and hit one of the most important passages in all of first and second Samuel from chapter seven this morning a really special really neat passage in the Bible and and this part of the Bible is about this transition in Israel's history, right? We see how Israel came from uh, being Abraham and then Moses and and now to being a kingdom, an earthly kingdom here on earth. We, We started this year off in Genesis where we see how Abraham was called by God to be a special kind of family, to be set apart, to be holy, to be called out from the world in order to make a difference in the world. Abraham was told that he was going to be a great nation and that a, a big nation would come from him more numerous than the stars in the sky. We know that that became the Israelites and of course the Israelites rebelled and they ended up in slavery. God judged them and they ended up, ended up in Egypt as slaves and the Lord delivered them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He sent Moses and Aaron and he, he did the ten plagues and Pharaoh finally relented and, and the, the Israelites left but then he changed his mind and the Egyptians pursued him and, and God d- divided the waters and the people passed through on the Red Sea Road. You know the story, they ended up at Mount Sinai where the Lord appeared in, in majesty and glory and fire and cloud and he gave his people the law at Mount Sinai but, but then when they arrived at the, the promised land, the land of Canaan, they, they were too fearful only Caleb and Joshua said, We can do this. The rest of them said, No way, we're going back. So the Lord led them into the wilderness for 40 years. And finally, we read about in Deuteronomy how Moses gave them the farewell speech on the plains of Moab, looking into Canaan. And finally, they, Joshua leads them into Canaan and they conquer the land. They, they enter the land. And up until this point, Israel had never had a king, they didn't need a king, they had the prophets. God spoke His very word through Moses and through Aaron. God gave them His own direction through the prophets. And then He gave them judges when they had entered into Canaan to to rule in local judicial matters and to settle disputes among the tribes. But now that they look around in Canaan, and they see all these nation states that have these mighty kings who lead their people into glorious battle, They say, yeah, we want one of those. We want a king. We want a a really cool king who can lead our nation into battle and kind of be the the standard bearer for Israel. And God says, I'm the king of Israel. I'm the standard bearer for Israel. You don't need a king. But they they continue to whine and cry out. So finally, God relents and and says, fine, I'll give you a king, but it's not going to be like one you think it will be. This king is not going to have control. I'm still the sovereign God of the universe. Every molecule is still under my reign and my authority and my power and my control. This king I'll give you is supposed to be kind of a vice king, kind of a vice ruler that I will allow you to have for a season. And of course, the people love Saul, the first king of of Israel. He's The consummate politician, he's tall and he's good looking and he's successful in military conquest and the people love him. But of course, Saul begins to compromise, he begins to drift away from the mission that God had given to the people of Israel way back in Genesis 12 to be a conduit of God's blessing to the world, he lost sight of that. He started seeing, you know, some success militarily, he started seeing, I'm, I'm the king of Israel, that's a pretty cool thing. And he loses sight of the mission of God for Israel. He begins to do some really foolish things that really mess up. He, uh, he was easily distracted, he lost his focus on the Lord and, and began, like I said, to make these little compromises. He offered an unlawful sacrifice when he was in a hurry and Samuel didn't show up in time He said, oh, just give me, the, give me the ox, I'll do it. <laughs> An unlawful sacrifice in an effort to manipulate God in order to, to get God's favor. If we're going to go into battle, I better burn this ox right now. I'll just do that so we can make God fight for us. You don't make God do anything. He didn't realize that. He made ridiculous orders. He, he, one time he forbade anyone in Israel to eat until they had defeated the Philistines. That was a silly law. His own son broke that law. He, uh, he went into battle without hearing confirmation from the Lord. He waited and waited, and God didn't answer, so he said, we're doing it anyway. Let's go. <laughs> How do you think that battle went? Not good. And then when God tells him to destroy everything among the Amalekites' camp, he goes in, and, you know, ready to destroy everything. But then he's like, ooh, that's shiny. I think I'm going to keep that. He takes the gold and the silver And then he destroys, oh yeah, you guys destroyed that that worthless junk. Yeah, God said destroy it, so get rid of that junk. But let's keep this nice stuff for ourselves. Disobeyed the Lord, so the Lord rejected Saul. He withdrew his spirit, 1 Samuel says, from Saul. He sent Samuel to anoint a new king, a young shepherd boy named David, the youngest of Jesse's sons. He would be the next king. And we know that Saul acted foolishly, but David, we're told, was a man after God's own heart. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 13. It'll be on the screens here. 1 Samuel 13, verse 13 says, Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Interesting. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. A man after God's own heart, the man of of God's own choosing. We mentioned last week how David, even though he was anointed early on, he still had to wait for his turn. Saul remained on the throne for years after David's anointing. And after David had killed Goliath, the, the champion, the mightiest of the mighty Philistines, that his popularity just soared. He went from being a court musician to being a military commander, and the people loved him. They sang songs. David has slain his tens of thousands, and Saul has slain his thousands. They they mocked Saul. So Saul, of course, became insanely jealous, insanely paranoid. And he openly tried to kill David, threw a spear at his head a couple of times. He just ordered his army, kill David. I'm not gonna have it anymore. But, and then we talked about last week how Saul shows up in this cave where David happens to be hiding with 600 men. And they all say, God's given you Saul today, go, go kill him. And David says, Awesome. And he takes his sword and runs up there and sneaks up on him, raises that sword ready to kill Saul. Finally, he's gonna be the king. And something stops him. He realizes, God's anointed is before me. This is God's plan. Who am I to to take vengeance on Saul? The Lord will do this in his perfect timing and in his perfect way. So he decides to let God be God instead of playing God. And he only cut off a corner of his robe and said, the Lord will avenge me. But far be it from me. My hand will not be against you. Let the Lord do that. Let the Lord handle it. Let God be God. So today we're going to look at another text about King David, 2 Samuel 7. And like I said, this is one of the key passages in all of the Scripture in terms of laying out God's salvation plan. What is God doing in the big story of Scripture? From Genesis to Revelation, this is one of the key, this is called the Davidic Covenant It's a a, a turning point in the way that God relates to his people and to the cosmos, the created order, the universe. So we're going to read this text uh, together this morning. Why don't we stand in honor of God's word as we read the first three verses this morning? 2 Samuel 7, verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan, Hey, like that guy. The prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. This is the word of God. You can be seated. So at this point in Israel's history, David had secured the borders of Jerusalem. He had vanquished all the enemies of Israel. The Philistines had been subdued. All the the surrounding kingdoms that used to just make mayhem for the Israelites had been squashed. David had built out the walls of Jerusalem. He had expanded the city and peace was on Israel. It's really the high point in Israel's history. It's the most triumphant time for their whole country. They're a mighty nation in, in commerce, in trade, in military might. This is kind of the the high point for Israel. And so David sits there in this beautiful new constructed city, in his beautiful new palace that's just flourishing under God's leadership because, as Nathan says, God was with David in all that he did. But David realizes something's not right. Here he sits on his throne in this beautiful new palace, and God still dwells in a tent. Now, it's a fancy tent, okay? This is a a really nice tent. It's got golden rings for the the curtains. It's got uh, a golden lampstand in it. It's got some really nice accoutrement in it. it. It's got some really nice touches to it, but it's still a tent. Even in David's society, they knew that a palace was better than even the fanciest tent. So he says, I'm going to build the Lord a house. It's the word "bait" in Hebrew, And it's very important in this text, the word house. It can be used in a few different ways. And here when David says, I should build a house for God, he means it as a temple. A dwelling where God's glory can exist and people can come to worship God in his house, in his glory. Richard said, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That's kind of what he's talking about here. I'm going to build a temple For God, a big place where all God's people can come and worship him in glory. And the prophet Nathan says, yeah, okay, sure. That sounds great. Go do it. God's been with you in everything else that you've done. Why wouldn't he be with you now? Go make it happen. But then look at verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. I have been moving about. Do you catch that? In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? I think God's being sarcastic here. It's pretty funny. Why haven't you done this yet? God says to Nathan here, does David really think that I need a house in order to operate, in order to carry out my purposes? Does David really believe that my ego dictates having a fancy temple? Doesn't he know that I'm Yahweh? I'm the Lord God of the universe. I'm the one who made heaven and earth and who put the stars in place with my fingers. The instructions that I gave for the ark meant for it to be portable as I moved about. The ark was commanded to have rings on it for poles so it could be carried from place to place. Our God is not a stagnant God. He's a God on the move, and He moves today. Let's not forget that. How often do we try to contain God, to limit Him, to, to contain him in one fixed geographic place. We do that a lot, I think, instead of simply letting God be God on the move. He goes on, verse 8, God still talks to Nathan. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. It wasn't through your own doing, I did it. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. It wasn't that you were this great military commander. It's because I was with you, and that's it. And I will make for you a great name. That sounds familiar. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. We heard that back in Genesis 12, didn't we? When we started this whole thing in January. Look at Genesis 12, 2 and 3, what God says to Abraham I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and he who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That was God's plan. He blesses his people. Why? We talked about this last fall. In order to be a blessing. Remember we talked about how Our tendency is when God blesses us is just to kind of hold those blessings to ourselves and say, sweet, thanks, God, this is awesome. But we're supposed to be more like a sieve, right, where God's blessings pass through us into the world. It's much better to be a conduit of God's blessing into the world rather than just a bowl. I love Mark Anderson, Manderson here that said, uh, don't roll like a bowl, live like a sieve. Good stuff. Important to remember. I won't forget that one. God wants to make David into a great nation. And he has made David into a great nation. Why? Not just so David could feel proud or important as the ruler of this cool nation. No. So that God's redemptive purposes could be carried out through Israel into the world. And then God goes further in verse 10. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. True rest only comes from God. How many of you feel tired today? Don't raise your hand. (laughs) True rest is only given by God's grace. No matter how much sleep you get, no matter how calm things may seem in your life, you will not be at peace. As St. Augustine said, our souls find no rest until they rest in thee, O God. So what is happening here is God's saying, I will appoint a place. I'll plant my people where, where I want them to be. I'll give you rest. It's not you, David, who's going to do this thing. It's me, the sovereign God, will do these things in my perfect timing and in my perfect way but here's where it just gets mind-blowing though keep reading verse 11 all right moreover the lord declares to you that the lord will make you a house god says you want to build me a house david no 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 i'm going to build you a house instead i'm going to build you the kind of house that you couldn't dream of because i'm the house builder not you you're not God. I am. So what kind of house is the Lord going to build for David? Let's keep reading. Verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I'll raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Ah, so we get a clue here that this house that God's talking about building is not a physical structure. We get a hint here that this kind of house is a, a dynasty it's a family. It's, it's a lineage that he's talking about. A family house like the, the house of Montague or Capulet in Romeo and Juliet. Or the, the house of Windsor, the current British monarchy. You know, Henry VIII came from the house of Tudor, right? When the Tudors ruled. It's a, it's a family that he's talking about. A lineage, a dynasty. That's the kind of house that he's referring to. So what will it look like? Verse 13. Your offspring, he shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Okay, well I, I know that he's probably talking about Solomon here, right? Solomon was the next king after David, his son, who really shouldn't ever have been king. He was about 10th in line in the succession of kings. But I know that, that through God's will, Solomon became king, and that he did build a house for God. He built the temple, the, the, the temple house was constructed by Solomon. I get that, but it says here that his kingdom will be established forever, Solomon's kingdom did definitely not last forever. It it fell apart. Solomon ended up turning away from the Lord. He married all these pagan women, and and he built pagan temples for them and started cultivating this this worship of pagan gods in Israel, and it all fell apart. He messed everything up. The kingdom split into two. It was never the same after Solomon. Even though he was wise at the beginning, his, his wisdom ended up corrupting him. So God can't be talking about Solomon here. There's got to be something bigger going on in this passage. Look at the next verse. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Ah, okay. It's about Jesus Christ. Every page of the Bible is about Jesus Christ. And here it's, it's explicit. It's going to be the son of God himself. But what about this next part? When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him. Wait, Jesus was sinless. Jesus didn't commit iniquity. He didn't, God didn't discipline him with the stripes of the sons of men. I know that this is about Jesus now, but Jesus lived a sinless life. God never punished him, right? Why would he? He never had to. God never allowed bad people to give him stripes, with the marks from whipping. Oh, wait. Yes, he did. Good Friday, we talk about The punishment that Christ received on our behalf. The stripes that he took for us when the Romans flogged him. Remember what the prophet Isaiah said about the Messiah way back in the 8th century B.C. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Whoa. So, this is clearly about the Messiah, Jesus Christ, here. And God is saying to David here that he will establish a dynasty that will come from his lineage and reign forever. And this new ruler that will come through this dynasty will be unlike any other king the world has ever seen, because he will be the Son of God Almighty. He will come to earth to rescue us, and by his stripes, we will be healed. Let's finish the text. Verse 15. But my steadfast love, my determined love, will never depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. You see, the kingdom of God's people the kingdom of God on earth, as exhibited by his church now, his people, will never, ever perish. We know that churches are broken and messy places a lot of times. You've, a lot of you have seen that. But God's church will never perish. We know that churches are closing their doors all the time. We hear about churches dying. But the church will never perish because God is setting up a kingdom on earth that will never fade or spoil or or perish. Not even when the the Assyrians came into Israel, the northern kingdom in 722 BC and wiped them out, God's kingdom still existed. And then when the Babylonians came into the south in in Judah and Jerusalem and they wiped out the southern kingdom, God's kingdom still existed. Because a few hundred years later, a new king would be anointed. A new king would arrive, not on a throne, but in a manger. A king unlike any other the world had ever seen, in order to set up the kind of kingdom that would never, ever fade from the earth again. A few hundred years later, the angel showed up to Mary in Luke chapter 1 and said this, The angel said to Mary, Don't be afraid, for you found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Yeshua, salvation, salvation. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So David wants to build God a house, and God says, no, I'm going to build you a house that will last forever. I'm going to set up a dynasty that will come from your line and it will be unlike any other dynasty that ever existed. We know that the Tudors died out and and, and faded away and one day the house of Windsor will be no more, but the house of Jesus Christ will exist forever. And here's the thing, there's many times in our own lives where we're tempted to, to think that we know best what to do next. We know what it is that's the next right thing to do. We're just going to do it. You know, David is at this point where he's established peace in Israel, and he's, squashed all, he's squashed all the external threats around him, and he says, I know what to do. I'm going to build a temple now. That's what's right. But he forgets that God is God, and that David is not God. God is the house builder. David is but dust that God has breathed into Psalm 127 reminds us of this truth. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, it's no good. It's all vanity. It's worthless. David wants to build a house, but it's worthless unless the Lord is the one who builds the house. So for us today, if we're going to see our dreams our efforts, our vision for the future come to fruition, come to bear any kind of fruit and meaning in this life and the next, then we must be sure that it's the Lord who's establishing our ways, that it's the Lord who plans our steps, that it's the Lord who builds the house that we are seeking to build. This is true in a marriage I get to do premarital counseling. I love it as part of my job. I've got a couple couples that I'm talking to right now. And basically, it comes down to the idea that the Lord has to be the one building your marriage because you can't do it. You can't. It'll fail every time. It's true in our families. You can't parent unless the Lord establishes your parenting. You can't honor your father and mother the way so many of you have honored aging parents in this congregation unless the Lord establishes that work. It's true in your vocation. All of our careers are just vanity, a chasing after the wind, unless the Lord is establishing our work. It's, it's true in every aspect of our lives that we have to let God be God and follow His lead. It's true in this church as well. Unless the Lord establishes the work of this church, it's all vanity and chasing after the wind. So let's don't get ahead of God. Let's, let's, let's wait on Him. Let's, let's don't get too far behind him either. And let's don't get ahead of him. Let's follow the Lord's lead. How can you do that? How is it possible to know what the Lord's up to in your life and in the life of our church? Well, sometimes you have to be still and know that he is God and that we are not.